welcome back to War Machine. We recently spoke with Saul Newman, who is a British theorist, lecturer, and author working at the intersection of post-anarchism, which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, he coined that term, actually. Uh, Post-structuralist thought and political theology. We spoke about, well, post-anarchism, obviously, uh, Max Stirner, uh, a little bit of political theology, Bruno Latour, and what maybe we could call a kind of magically inflected, radical, eco-animist, post-anarchist political theology. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, so we're going to work on that. Um, But it, it was a great conversation, and I've been really happy to delve more deeply into anarchist thought. So thanks to Federico Campagna for recommending and and connecting us with Saul. Uh, It's much appreciated. Check us out on Facebook at War Machine Podcast, on Twitter at War Machine Pod. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. All right, here's Saul Newman. Yeah, so apologies in, in advance, you know, if any of our questions are basic or remedial or whatever. Because basic, I think- basic questions about all I can cope with, actually. <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> nothing, nothing too complicated, please. <laughs> yeah, on a Monday. But, oh, right. but yeah, no, as far as I can tell, the anarchism is not the most popular discourse or form of political thought. Right. I think it's fair to say, at least in its more, you know, explicit articulations for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Mm. You know, and I want to get into some substantive stuff on that, but I'm wondering if maybe you can say a little bit about yourself. Like, were you always an anarchist? Were you an edgy teenager? Or, you know, where'd you pick up your unique orientation to politics? Right. Um, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, when I was, uh, I mean, back in my younger days, I was I was a Marxist, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I was almost embarrassed to say. Um and uh, then, you know, I started kind of reading uh, some anarchist critiques of Marxism. That kind of made quite a lot of sense to me, you know, particularly, uh, you know, the, the sort of the emphasis on, you know, self-determination, individual freedom, autonomy, uh, and a kind of a critique of, of state power and authoritarianism. So I just sort of drifted more and more towards the, you know, the anarchist style of the, um, or the anarchist, uh, you know, side of the argument, really. And I, you know, read Bakunin and uh, Kropotkin and Proudhon in sort of the 19th century anarchist thinkers and, and I thought you know anarchism really offered quite a, an interesting and sort of viable alternative and and as you say a very sort of marginalized uh, political discourse for me a very kind of appealing way of thinking about politics and practicing politics and thinking about sort of you know social relationships in comparison to more authoritarian forms of, uh, of radical politics so um so you know I, I just kind of started becoming uh, interest in anarchism, probably more from a theoretical rather than a kind of an activist perspective. Um, uh, David Graeber once accused me of being an armchair anarchist, and I have to, have to confess this is largely true. Um, so I've only been on the periphery of, of kind of anarchist, you know, circles mm. and networks and so on, but I've always been you know, interested in anarchism more from a sort of philosophical and uh, uh, I guess you could say theoretical perspective. And then, you know, I suppose a bit later on, I kind of started reading a lot of post-structuralist theory and uh, thought maybe I could sort of put put the two things together somehow and it seemed to me there was kind of a quite a consistent fit between the thought of Michel Foucault and Deleuze and Derrida and even Lacan to some extent actually in a kind of a paradoxical sort of way yeah um, yeah. between you know those ideas and uh, and and anarchist theory and I hadn't really been done before as well so I mean that was really the kind of subject of my uh, my -hmm. my PhD yeah well the the charge of armchair anarchism notwithstanding, I, I suspect that, or I wonder if, was there something that, not just that you you read along the way, but was there sort of mm-hmm. a, a particular experience that you had or like or an occasion or a relation or an event or whatever? Being, so, being harassed that... being harassed by the cops in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was, you know, very, very trivial thing really, but just, okay. you know, I mean, a couple of times just, just being, you know, sort of, you know, pulled over and, uh, yeah. um, you know, you know, you, you you really you really see the sense in which the kind of the state routinely abuses its um its power and, and kind of exercises kind of threat of, of coercion uh, over you and, and and I suppose if you like it was you know, one of the formative experiences uh, it was it was not you know I mean c- compared to what you guys have to deal with uh, probably on a 
on a daily basis over there with you know heavily armed cops with uh, you know assault rifles is, is really nothing. It's really very very trivial um, experience. But but nevertheless, it kind of gave me a, a sense of um, how state power operates. Yeah, strange the the form of state violence, the armed mm. the, the more armed form of state violence that we have here mm. because. As a, I don't know, you're probably aware that we we do face a lot of uh, civilian gun violence in the United yeah, States. Yes, no, not yes. not even just from like small scale, you know, murdering people in, in cities mm. and in the country, but also mass shootings. We mm. we seem to be we're we're very exceptional as as Americans. It's really frustrating, but also it seems to be that those are for a large segment of our population, the factor of mass gun violence doesn't cause us to address the core spiritual and not in the like religious sense, but the core essence of like, why is it that our, our country is so violent towards itself? It seems like the response is always to, <clears throat> well, let's give the cops more guns. Let's give people yes, more yes. guns. Let's, let, yes. let's weaponize, let's weaponize the citizenry more. Right. And so yes. it's really interesting how the response to that brutal t- type of state violence is to fund it even more here. Yes. Well, indeed. Yes. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's an arms race basically, isn't it? It, it really does strike me as as really a form of, of madness, actually. I mean, just sort of, I'm not trying to be critical, but, you know, um, just, you know, the scenes of, you know, heavily armed militia walking around with assault rifles and, um, uh, and, and you know, the police sort of um, heavily armed police um, uh, responding to, to, to protests with extreme violence. I mean, I mean the scenes are just just yeah. re- really quite shocking, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but there's a large overlap in personnel between heavily armed militia and heavily yeah, and, and the police themselves. The that's right. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. People like the three, the three percenters, oath keepers. Yeah. These militias are drawing from yeah. former military, former police, and they also have inroads yeah. to to sheriffs and all those things. So I, I think yeah. the technical term for that is cahoots. They're in cahoots. Yeah. In cahoots. Yeah. Yes, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, that 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 question of uh, power and counterpower, I think, is one of the things that's very sort of relevant to a discussion of anarchism. And you know, I think maybe that's a place we can something we can put on the horizon: the question of violence. That's right. Um, but I mean, it's it's kind of it's a strange sort of um, I mean, sort of the ideology behind some of these um, sort of militia groups claims to be sort of anti anti-state and semi sort of libertarian. But it's a strange kind of perversion of freedom, isn't it? Because it, it you know, it, I mean, not only does it kind of perpetuate state power but i mean it, it's it's complete opposite of anarchism in, in a sense isn't it you have this kind of strange convergence of uh, so-called libertarianism with a kind of extreme social conservatism and a desire to um in a way bolster uh, state authority against against anarchists and against illegal migrants for instance and uh, so, so I, I find it very paradoxical this this the nature of what you might call right-wing libertarianism and the way in which it kind of coincides with, uh, you know, quite authoritarian and sort of socially conservative uh, forms of politics over there. Right. It's America's brand of fascism, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It it does come a lot out of the, uh, I think a lot of the animus comes out of the the loss of the South and the civil war. Yeah. This kind of, this kind of Southern, I I don't know. I can't remember the name of the the South will rise again kind of mentality. Right. And Mm -hmm. you have, because it is heavily, I want to say it's heavily white, but it's also there are a lot of people of we would say people of color who, you know, are wearing, you know, Pinochet wasn't wrong kind of T-shirts up in Portland during, you know, uh, right wing rallies. Right. So it's mm. it's more of a it, it has an international flavor to it, but it's, mm. it's still very much a supremacist movement. And it is mm. weird to, to hear people like even Noam Chomsky talk about how libertarian has a different meaning in different parts of the world. Right. Mm. It means more of what we would call anarchists. It, it's it's actually. It's, it's actually not a policy of right-wing kind of heavily armed uh, government-funded military and militias, but it's more mm. of a, you know, it's, it's got a more, you know, radical leaning toward it where it's actually critiquing even military power and cultural yes. power and the various forms of hegemony. But it, it's also, there's a practicality to the issue because we were talking just briefly about migration and with, with the, the changing nature of our climate and you know deforestation, uh, des- desertification, crop failures, and, and just, you know, even just having access to drinking water all over the world is going to be changing mm. rad- radically mm. over the next 50 to 100 years. The UN is predicting anywhere between 250 to a billion million to a, a billion climate refugees. Yeah. It's a bit it's a bigger it's a bigger issue. I, I just think that, there, that maybe we can zero in on unpacking. What is power, and what is an what can be an anarchist critique of that? Because I think I think your mm. work and your dissertation you talked about it goes beyond just critiquing external or straight forms of power and hegemony, yes. but also looking about how inter, how those like you know what Said called cultural hegemony, how that that hegemony influences internally how we think about ourselves, and that's yes. the that was the critique or the advancement of the critique that I liked about your first book on on you know on anarchism and post structuralism. 
Yes, yes. I mean, I suppose the point I'd make is that, you know, um, I mean, power is not simply confined to, to the state and its institutions. I mean, I mean, you know, obviously we you know live in a, a sort of situation which power is, is networked, is in some ways sort of, you know, decentralised or, or rather which kind of um, it, it emerges from multiple sources within the um, national and, uh, and kind of global networks and so on. We talk about, you know, the power of big tech, uh, the power of uh, diffuse uh, sort of institutions and social networks, and also, as you would say, a, a kind of an internalization of, of power within the, you know, within within the subject. I mean, one of the things I'm quite interested in exploring is, you know, this whole question of what I would call voluntary servitude, which is quite an old idea that kind of goes back to uh, a thing called Etienne de la Boissy in the um, in the 16th century, and, and he said, look, the main problem for for politics and the main problem for understanding political domination is the way in which we as individuals simply accept and comply with with authority he would say that you know the the you know that the power or the authority of the the tyrant or the political leader is in a way simply a kind of a uh, an alienation of our own abandonment of our own sort of power over ourselves you know so so, so the problem for him is is this kind of idea of, of sort of you know, voluntary obedience or voluntary servitude we actually create the power which which dominates us in so many ways so i think it comes down to uh, to the subject and our own sort of individual kind of relationship with power and also our relationship with other people. You know, the desire to dominate is, is simply the reverse side of the coin of the, of the desire to be dominated. I think they, they both come from the same kind of, the same sort of subjective uh, structure, if you like. It's like sadomasochistic, yeah. right? Uh, in a way, yes. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, it is a certain kind of masochism. And we can see ourselves, I mean, no one, no one's really sort of immune from this temptation, right? We can see ourselves falling to the trap all the time. Um, I, th- I think there are certain sort of tendencies within us, within every individual, which kind of leads to a certain sort of, you know, s- relinquishment of our own autonomy, a desire to be dominated, a desire to be mastered. How else do we explain the appeal of authoritarian systems and authoritarian uh, leaders and so on, populist right-wing yeah. leaders? I mean, you know, it's a desire for mastery, I think, is, is you know, a very kind of deep psychological phenomena, which, which kind of needs to be uh, properly explored in radical politics. Yeah, the desire for mastery is really interesting to think about. It's also a desire for, as you say, subordination, but it's also Mm -hmm. gets articulated politically oftentimes as a desire for freedom. And I think oftentimes people just kind of assume they think they know what that means Mm. and go from there. And Mm. one of the things I think is interesting about, as, as I take it, the or particular anarchist understanding of freedom ontologically is that it's not something that's placed over the horizon. It's not sort of liberatory, exactly, uh, way of mapping the ground, right? It's a sort of, it's a starting point. Freedom is an ontological yes. <clears throat> starting yes. point. Yes. And I think that's really important to, uh, to think about. It seems to me also that the recognition of that kind of freedom is only possible by recognizing the degree of our unfreedom and the particular shape that takes and yeah. how oftentimes like like you're talking about that takes the form of servitude yes. um, that is willing in the get yes. that it's a very a willing servitude that we want to invest ourselves in the game of power yes which is in some ways like an invisible game yeah and so it's like that yeah. i'm curious about this like this idea of invisibility and opaqueness and how this sort of overlays mm-hmm. into some of the things you were talking about you were, you, you used language of the soul and things like this. And I'm wondering mm. if, if there's a spiritual dimension to anarchism, or maybe just, maybe you're willing to talk about mm. it in effective terms. And no, no I, I think that's, I think, I think it's very important actually. I mean, I mean, just, I mean, this whole question of, um, you know, sort of the, the paradox of voluntary servitude is precisely the idea that we, you know, we, we freely submit. So in a way, in a way, freedom is, is still the kind of the, you know, the, the ontological, starting point, if you like, for, for the subject. And this is what someone like Laboisi would say, you know, the, the fact that we freely abandon our own freedom also points to the fact that we can freely reclaim it, we, you know. So, so the other side of voluntary servitude is, is what Foucault would call voluntary inservitude. In other words, if, if um, you know, if we create <clears throat> the systems which dominate us, you know, purely out of our own free will and free volition, that means we can just as easily reclaim our freedom and therefore we can just as easily um you know sort of demolish or not even demolish but actually just transcend and bypass these 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 systems of power which we've created i mean i would say that actually you know the ontological basis of, of all power and all domination is is freedom it all starts with freedom the freedom of the subject we were always much freer than we realize and it's simply a question of somehow realizing and um 
activating this freedom which kind of lies lies dormant within us and, and this is also how I would think to some degree or, or to some extent about about spirituality I mean, I mean to me anarchism is a kind of a it's a spiritual enterprise actually um, I'm quite taken with uh, with Max Stirner's idea of the insurrection which he uh, opposes to the idea of revolution so he says you know the, re- the revolution is about changing the nature of, you know, social and political institutions and uh, removing um, <clears throat> or demolishing a system of laws, for instance. But, the, you know, the trouble with this is, that, you know, if, if you just you simply create another set of institutions in its place, and this has been the fate of every revolution, really, uh, in history, right? I mean, you know, you, you, you get rid of one state or you get rid of one system of power and you simply create another one in its place. Um, so, so there's something problematic, he would say, about sort of trying to change the nature of external reality before one changes oneself. In other words, we, you know, he would say we have to kind of look within ourselves and try to explore our own relationship with power um, and the way in which power so often sort of seduces us and traps us. And until we do this, until we sort of engage in this kind of internal, if you like, micro-political and micro-ethical revolt, then we're simply uh, fated or destined to kind of keep on re- you know, reproducing new systems of power after every revolution. So this is what he means by the insurrection. The, you know, the insurrection is often, the, the word insurrection is often sort of, um, I think, uh, mistakenly associated with, you know, with anarchic violence and this kind of thing. But uh, for Max Stirner, it actually means something very different. It's an ethical transformation of the self, which for him is the, the sort of the starting point for every kind of, you know, every form of radical politics, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so you know, it's, it's, it's what Foucault would call the kind of the care of the self or, or the work the ethical work which one conducts upon oneself, which is not, by the way, it's not, it's not a, it's not purely individualistic, because it's also something which can be done, you know, and and should be done actually in in association with others. I mean, it's also about establishing a, a certain kind of yeah. sort of ethical relationship with non-domination with other people. I think there's a way maybe reframing this notion of insurrection and maybe getting it away from a kind of a, a common connotation of just being like a form of violence mm. of like a, an eruption of violence is maybe mm. maybe we can change the connotation of from eruption you know like a volcano or some kind of mm. explosion to an eruption like an uh, ir like something that comes from the inside right yes so it, it kind of reframes yes. it and like it's more internalized yes. coming out of ourselves but i think like in yes. terms of the question of freedom i think people have in the states have an idea that freedom is automatic somebody else takes care of it it's automatic right it's like it mean it's automated it, there's no there's no sense of responsibility there's no sense of like i have a responsibility to my community yes well that's, that's right i mean and, and it's a model of freedom which is you know based on the on the idea of the individual right or, or the, and the isolated individual um which kind of reproduces i mean you're talking about you know this um you know sort of mass violence um um, problem that you have over there. I mean, it, it, the, the idea of possessive individualism really kind of reduces human relations to almost like a Hobbesian war of, uh, of all against all um, kind of scenario, actually, and which also paradoxically leads to the emergence of the, the Leviathan state because therefore you need some kind of institution um, yeah. or entity to, to kind of protect individuals from, from one another. So it seems to me that, you know, the idea of the self-interest or, or selfish individual um, on the one hand and the state on the other are kind of like two sides of the same coin. I mean, they, they both sort of you know, reinforce one another. So when I talk about, you know, autonomy, I'm really very, you know, very far removed from that kind of, you know, very sort of individualistic idea of freedom. I mean, I would, I would, you know, certainly recognise that autonomy always has to be thought in relation to the other and, and in association with other people. I mean, you can never be completely autonomous, obviously. Um, yeah. We always have to kind of explore our kind of relationships of dependency with the other and, and this is where i think ethics becomes quite important um yeah we, we need to kind of uh, sort of engage in a sort of ethical experimentation in our, in our relationships with one another and for me, for me that's where all radical politics starts essentially so once again it's not so much about kind of establishing the kind of the great utopian society on the other side yeah. of power or, or it's not about even thinking about you know revolution with a capital r as part of this sort of grand event which completely overturns social and political institutions in one go or in one sort of uh, fell swoop. I mean, I think it's much more complex than this. I mean, there was a very famous uh, German socialist anarchist called Gustav Landauer in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And he he pointed to the way in which the state itself was just simply a series of, um, you know, micro-political relations between individuals. Um, you know, so rather than think about the state in terms of this sort of transcendent institution that kind of stands above us we should think about the state as 
as a series of networks and, and relations between people. And therefore, his argument was we, we sort of overcome state authority by, by changing the nature of those relationships. Yeah, that's really interesting. That sort of folds into this question of political theology a mm, little bit. Yes. But, and um, I'm sort of curious about what, if any, uh, theological sources you, you draw on in your work. You know, I'm not familiar with like all, all of your stuff, but it occurs to me that maybe there's like correlations or overlaps with like, you know, weak thought, mm-hmm. you know, Caputo or. Mm, absolutely. What maybe you can say something about the salience of, of theology for your work. I mean, certainly uh, Sterner is very theologically minded in his own way. Um, well, that's, that's, that's interesting, actually, because most, you know, most people would sort of associate Sterner, of course, with a, with a complete rejection of all aspects of theology in a sense. So, so I mean, Stoner is kind of engaged in, the, in a critique of, uh, of political theology and, and a critique of what he would regard as the um, the way in which, you know, modern humanism, at least in, in, as it was articulated in the 19th century, you know, from things like Feuerbach and so on, is simply a kind of a form of a Christianity reinvented. Yeah. So, you know, when um, when when German idealist philosophers talk about God, uh, talk about man, they're really talking about God, actually. So, you know, he wanted to kind of, remove or, or deconstruct the the sort of the specters of Christianity which we're still sort of hanging over in the discourse of modern humanism but on the other hand I mean I think the point you make is quite interesting actually because um, there's a sense in which when Sterner talks about what he calls the ego as something which is essentially undefinable that in a way he's doing I suppose something like what's called a negative theology right so negative theology is the idea that you know you you, you can't really talk about God in, in any kind of definable way. You can't really identify God in any sense. So the closer you, you try to define him or the more you try to define him, the more, the more God sort of recedes further and further into the distance. And I think this is, this is quite interesting, actually. And, you know, negative theology was kind of regarded as being quite sort of, you know, heretical and so on, and, you know, from the position of more mainstream forms of, you know, Christian theology. There is something quite sort of theological about the way in which Sterner regards the ego. I mean, it, it's a mistake to think that the what he calls the ego is some kind of essential identity. It's 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 not the individual. It's something which is much more, um, if you like, amorphous and more more fluid. It's a kind of a much more of a sort of a postmodern conception of becoming. Actually, it's something which is always in a process of flux, change, which is which is mutable, and which is, as I said, is not reducible to a set of characteristics or to a fixed identity or to some kind of essentialist core so so therefore you know the more you the more you come to define it the more it kind of slips out of your out of your grasp if you like there is a, a certain kind of negative theology i think in sterner which is quite interesting actually i have a whole chapter on sterner in my uh, sort of recent book on, on political theology because i think he engages in a very important critique of political theology i'm assuming as a as an anarchist a 19th century anarchist he, he's going to be confronting the theological from the sense of like uh, a form of power. And I, I've read the introduction to that, your recent work on political theology, I haven't right. gone through much else, but I know you, you you talk a lot in there towards the end of the introduction about the relationship between religion and power, power and religion, mm-hmm. how yeah. it's almost as if power has become religion or religion yes. has, become, yes. has become power. Um, I'm looking forward to reading that chapter on Sterner because I haven't read much of, of Sterner's work. But one thing for me, God as a symbol for me, it represents a form of power that's external that comes from outside and, yes. and for and it forms the social order. So you have this this Leviathan is like the modern, you know, a Schmidian translation the mortal, of mortal God. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, of this power that orders the chaotic forces yes. uh, of yes. the world. So without the Leviathan, aka God, mm-hmm. you would just have a bunch of people living in the state of nature, killing each other and raping yes. each other and taking their land and all this stuff, which yes. we still have, yes. right, with the state. But I'd be I'm really interested in maybe you could say a little bit more about how mm-hmm. Stern's critique of this form of power can lead to opening doors both externally and forms of power in internally in terms of how we've applied mm. that that anthropology because uh, and how that mm. might leave open a space for rearticulating a new anthropology which could form a new a new mm. a sense of com- community or politics or a uh, reimagining of sovereignty yeah right, right. I mean, yeah. Or, or even making or doing the negative theology thing to sovereignty right mm. where mm. You, you bring it all the way to its end to where you can't see it cataphatically any longer mm. so you're, you're kind of confronted with that opacity again and then in that sense that opacity gives you a mirror back to yourself because you see, oh, how much am I reflecting this in my external actions, right? My behaviors, mm, my mm. thoughts. I think there's a Buddhist ontology, a Buddhist anthropology here that might actually be better to deal with the kind of the kind of Hobbesian anthropology where we're not mm. anxious, 
read through psychoanalysis where we're not like these anxious creatures seeking to master the realm around us so that we can feel safe. Perhaps a more Buddhist political theology would be about, again, this internalization of how we've hegemonized forms of power and, um, I don't know, redisplayed those or redisplaced those externally. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, things to talk about there. I mean, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is, that, you know, from, from a from a strictly kind of theological point of view, if you like, I mean, uh, the thought of, of Karl Schmitt and, and indeed the whole notion of political theology, in other words, the whole idea of um, uh, of somehow the state being like a mortal god, um, uh, the state uh, or, or modern sovereignty being like a, a kind of a secularization of theological concepts. I mean, from a theological point of view, this is this is total heresy, actually. Um, so if you read, uh, you know, Eric Peterson's critique of of Schmidt, um, you know, where he basically accuses Schmidt of a kind of um, sort of you know engaging in sort of pagan heresies because you know Schmidt is is really reproducing a, a sort of a, a, a actually inventing a, if you like a political religion. Schmidt is not really a theologian, you know, in any kind of um, significant sense. I mean, he was kind of a, a lapsed Catholic, but, but you know, what he's trying to do is kind of, he's trying to invent a new religion of sovereignty, right? Uh, drawing upon theological concepts, but in a very kind of superficial way. And, you know, Eric Peterson basically said, well, you you know, in doing this, you know, um, you're simply ignoring the, the sort of the Trinitarian structure of, of, of Christianity, basically. And you're trying to reproduce a sort of a political monotheism. Right. So, so, so from a sort of theological point of view, I mean, I mean, political theology is actually quite sort of controversial. Uh, you mentioned also the um, the you know, thinkers like Caputo uh, before. So there's been a you know a, a kind of a post-Schmittian attempt, of course, to, to try to rethink the relationship between theology and and politics in ways in which are more a more sort of pluralistic and less authoritarian and, and less sort of you know sovereign centric, um, if you like. But, but yeah, I mean, I think I think theology has quite a lot of sort of radical potential, if you like. So I'm actually quite interested in exploring some of the um, the more heretical trends of, um, of of Christianity, for instance, as well as you know uh, anarchic trends within Judaism and kind of messianic thought, and even even Christian anarchism actually is quite interesting too. I mean, there's a certain anarchism which draws upon you know aspects of Christianity, you know, which are all about um, you know autonomy from the state and, and kind of developing sort of alternative uh, uh, communities, for instance, uh, and in a way being based upon, you know, the sort of the ethical principles as expressed in, uh, you know, on, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jacques Ellul, for instance, developed many of these kinds of um, Christianicus tendencies, actually, in, in a very sort of interesting way. So I'm, I'm quite interested in sort of drawing upon some of the more sort of radical and, and sort of, you know, heretical trends with or, or tendencies within, within the Christian tradition, as well as other religious traditions, to kind of escape this the, the trap that the schmidt um lays for us in other words to kind of think in ways which um which sort of transcend mm. political sovereignty right i think those resources are there in in, in certain aspects of uh, of theology yeah are you familiar with uh clayton crockett or jeff robbins yes 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 yeah, yeah so right. I, I do think there, there's a lot of resources there and i think both robbins and crockett ontologically are drawing a lot upon Thinkers mm. like Catherine Malibu, her notions mm. of the plastic ontology and stuff like that. Mm, so mm, yeah. I think there's, right. I th yeah. I was talking to uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Jordan Miller this morning, briefly. Oh, yes, that. right. Yeah. And, oh, do you know Jordan? I, uh, I read his book on, is a book called, is it called Resisting Theology or something Fury, like this? Yeah, or? Furious Hope. Yeah. I, that's it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. Yes. It was a very good book, actually. Yeah. I, oh, good. I'm sure he'll be pleased to hear that. But I mentioned to him that we were uh, speaking to you. It was actually in reference to like a William Blake poem. And towards the end of it, there, right. was a, there were a couple lines that had this, um, what, I, what I took to be a kind of like anarchic trajectory. And so I was just mm -hmm. kind of commenting on how I take the death of God, you know, in the, in the, in the yeah. Altizarian version of it. Yes, yes. To have a sort of a certain anarchic upshot. And um, he said this, maybe you can just comment on it. He says, I make the argument that if the death of God methodologically turns theology into the desire for a thinking that doesn't disappoint, sort of invoking Charles Winquist there, mm. it turns politics into the desire for a living that doesn't disappoint. I connect that to an anarchist prefigurative politics and look how the death of God can help interpret horizontally structured social movements. Mm. I thought that was pretty cool mm. and, and yeah. sort of on, on uh, spot on for what we're discussing. Do you want to comment on any of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably more f uh, more familiar with um, 
with uh, things like, like Caputo and, and, and Batimo and so on, or, or their version of, if you like, the death of God thesis, as it were. Um, so, I mean, what, you know, but, you know, they're, they're kind of saying the same thing, really, that in a way, you know, theology has to come to terms with with secularism. And, and more than actually, in a way, you know, secularism is, is actually the destiny of Christianity, right? So if we come to terms with, with the death of God as this, this kind of, you know, metaphysical, transcendent, you know, being, um, then what's left of Christianity really is, is, this, is, is a certain kind of, as it were, recognition of pluralism, uh, a sort of a hermeneutic and ontological freedom, if you like, a message of, you know, uh, you know, tolerance and charity and love. And in a way, this is really what Christianity essentially boils down to, right? So it's the idea that kind of God sort of performs his own kenosis, you know, God sort of empties himself of, of content and becomes um, uh, sort of concomitant with a certain kind of, you know, sort of radical pluralism and freedom. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a way of thinking of God without God, isn't it? Or, uh, or you know, religion with it without God. And if we think about this, and I think I think religion can actually have some quite important, quite powerful sort of ethical resources, which um, which you know, which sort of you know, radical political struggles can um, can kind of use and, uh, and and mobilize. Yeah, I'm sort of rereading some of the uh, grew up as a as a Christian, and mm-hmm. so when I read uh, anarchist thought, I start to sort of read the stories that I know through that framework mm-hmm. and think about you know this discussion of power and non-power. And mm, when you right. think about something like turn the other cheek, well, mm. what does that really mean? That's actually a very profound anarchist mm. statement, right? Yes. By not investing oneself in that yes. regime of power, it's a violence against violence. It's a it's a bigger yes, fuck. Yes. It's a bigger fuck you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's 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 an, an indifference to power, isn't it? It's almost like saying, well, uh, it's like saying that power doesn't really exist, or, or rather, it, it exists, but um, it, you know, it, power has no power over me. I'm indifferent to it. I turn my back upon it. Whereas if you fight power, then you also, in a strange kind of way, reaffirm it, don't you? You kind of reaffirm its existence. You know, you recognise it and you endow it with properties which which it doesn't necessarily have or you endow it with a certain kind of um, absolutism which it doesn't necessarily have. But if you, as, as you put it, you know, or as Christians put it, turn the other cheek, then I think, that, as you're right, I think it's it's much more kind of radical gesture, actually. It's yeah. simply turning one's back on power. I mean, and, and as a result of which power simply crumbles away. I like that better than turning your cheek, right? It should be show them your ass. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. It reminds me of that scene in uh, Braveheart or the Scottish. Or, yes. Know, yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. guilt up, right? <laughs> no, there's a, there's a lot there. I think that there's a, a, a profound kind of anarchic principle of turning the other cheek where Looking at God as a type of a, a type of power who disinvests himself mm. from that power and becomes a true pauper and doesn't doesn't re you know reconfigure and get that power back after some death and resurrection right there's uh, right. there's actually an absolute disinvestment and so there's no mm. longer that absolute power right that's a pretty radical notion but I'm wondering if maybe we can look at an anarchic theology as being more in the line mm. of Feuerbach where we see that it's not that there was this kind of divine power that had power over us we'd actually invested our life into that power we mm. by create by creating that power and then investing ourselves onto that right so mm. perhaps a christian a radical theology within that kind of christian vein would be not the the move from disinvestment of god disinvesting his power but of our disinvesting ourselves turning the other cheek yes. from that power the power that we've created right and, and yes. what kind of what kind of apophatic possibilities emerge out of that? Yes, yes. Because yes. I, th- I, th- I think that's another way that, like Matt's saying, to turn the other cheek. And then for me, connecting to one of uh, Matt's other really uh, this notion of magic, right? A kind of a postmodern return to the magical or this kind of investment of of what does magic mean after mm. the death of God and kind of the, the the rise and maybe fall in the sense of modernity or maybe the mm. critique this kind of this notion of the disenchantment of the world maybe after mm. that it's kind of fizzled out for a lot of people and, and as we were seeing I think there's also the religious that never went away and also is kind of re-emerging because like the, yes. the the modern screen of uh, the secularization hypothesis yes. is still beneficial in a lot of ways it, it's kind of like we're starting to see it maybe more there are more not cracks but like maybe the screen there is becoming more visible to us right mm. so i see maybe a, mo- a more postmodern in terms of the magical as a, re- a return to the quote-unquote pre-modern and the religious but with the modern difference there's a sense that like we can't re- it's a different it's a different layer of naivety so to speak right. 
Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, perhaps what we need is a certain kind of re reenchantment of the world, because you know, it seems to me that a kind of a strict notion of secularism, you know, which implies that you know you have this completely sort of you know neutral sphere of life, which is completely removed from you know any form of religion, and also the idea, you know, that somehow you know religion is simply pushed to the to the private sphere or the private space. I think leads to a kind of resurgence of religion, actually, and often in much more sort of toxic and virulent and, and violent form. Uh, and and we, we see this not only in, you know, the return of religious fundamentalism and religious-inspired uh, terrorism, for instance, but also in uh, new forms of populism, which I see as, as a form of religion reinvented. Populism also um, projects some notion of, of the sacred, the sacred people, for instance, or the, you know, uh, the sacred nation or some idea of a... A kind of an, an identity which um, which is seen to be sort of absolute and homogeneous, for instance, and which therefore always needs enemies, you know, whether those enemies are kind of, you know, liberal elites or migrants or minorities or whatever. This is precisely the return of religion, which is produced by, by a certain kind of interpretation of secularism as a kind of a reaction against it. So I think you're right. I think in a sense, we do need some way of, as it were, Reenchanting the world, which is not a it's not a matter of kind of going back to some kind of pre-secular or pre-modern times by any means, but it's kind of a recognition, isn't it, that um, there's perhaps more to more to life and more to social reality than simply a you know, a, you know, yeah, yeah, no, but to sort of draw on out maybe a thread that Preston was was uh, getting at, and I could be I could be wrong about this, but mm. like if you start with a, I mean, there's lots of different definitions of it Federico when we spoke to him gave us his own more sort of historically oriented definition of magic but if you draw out a sort of like Crowleyan version the art and science of changing reality in accordance with will mm. that seems to have yeah. a very sort of strong and salient political dimension that corresponds at least to some degree with what we're talking about here right when we talk about mm. investing our desires and attention to spooks Right. right, like we create these things that then yes. sort of lord lord over us. When you, yes. when you when you recognize how that process works, you can sort of not only reverse it, but you can sort of then create all kinds of other things that may be yes. more <clears throat> helpful and more fruitful and beneficial. Yeah, sure. Yes. No, I I, I would agree. And once again, I would kind of go back to, to Stoner here that these these spooks, whether it's the state or whether it's um, man or um, you know certain kinds of moral um, laws, for instance, um, uh, you know, uh, as well as, you know, what he would regard as kind of, you know, religious concepts and religious categories. I mean, he would say these are precisely figments of our imagination, which also sort of take on like an external reality that kind of come to dominate us and form the basis of, yeah. of the state, for instance, and uh, and so on. So, so yes, you're right. It's a, it's a question, isn't it, of, of kind of creating for ourselves a new kind of social reality mm. and, uh, you know, we don't recognize our own ability to do this. Yeah. Is it possible, do you think, to live without without spooks altogether? Without spoils, yes. It's uh, not, not without difficulty, actually, because perhaps there is something within us which um, which seeks to uh, seeks to create these spooks, which, which kind of give us some way of navigating the world, right? I mean, we, we, we like to invent uh, sort of narratives, you know, whether those narratives are kind of crazy conspiracy theories or you know, religious practices. I mean, you know, we, 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 we invent certain sort of stories which sort of give us a kind of like a cognitive mapping. So to live without spooks, well, yes, perhaps it's possible, but I mean, it's uh, it's something which we can perhaps engage in through developing, you know, uh, new forms of literature, for instance. Uh, artistic creation perhaps could be another way of, of, of doing it. It does seem there's a, there's a methodology here of one of the goal towards sublation rather than repression, right? Because we see, mm -hmm. I, I think, what I got from what you're talking about earlier about the rise of return of the repressed toxic yes. forms uh, of nationalism or fascism or religion yeah. is actually a, a form of repression that the modern state, the liberal state kind of enacted rather than a, a method or a form of sublation where we, we take the, the, the energy of these, of these spooks and kind of and subvert them into right like more productive forms of, of novelty rather than just trying mm. to suppress them we'll as much them as possible yes, yeah yes, yes that's right so I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if there's a there's a helpful way maybe a, a way of thinking of 
a different type of internal, right? That externalizes itself through the will, right? Because Matt was talking about how magic is a, is a way of willing a reality. Yeah. Well, I mean, your whole work all is about, mm-hmm. or at least the, the initial stages of it was how, how have we internalized these masters, right? And then mm-hmm. how, does that, how does that form itself in the magical will of the worlds we create around us? Mm-hmm. So, so th- there's a sense of where, I mean, even th- just that definition of Crowley's, right, can be, this is going to sound terrible, but, but numenized, right? Or, or <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you know, we're, 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 we're taking the, the this kind of like this post-structuralist approach to thinking of the self of, yes. will, of will and how that manifests itself through our magical incantations, through even the technologies we have, the yes, yes, the, the yes. types of communications we have. I mean, I would say actually humanity is just like we are a technology of the earth, but we're also a form of technology creators, right? We, we do create things like language, gestures, mm. even like, you know, our muscles are a type of creation that move around and get, mm. you know, to get food and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, you can go all the way back on different levels, right? But language mm-hmm. politics is a, is a technology right these are these are all forms of, of techne so but they're connected to again this this urge inside of us uh internally mm-hmm. uh, psychologically to to grapple with the kind of the frenzy of the sensorium right i do think that there's still a, a light of truth there to, to freud's notion that we are kind of neurotic animal mm-hmm. um and perhaps mm-hmm. that that lines up with what with aristotle's definition of humanity as a political animal we're political because we're neurotic we're kind of just circling around these same questions of like, what do we do with this internal frenzy? And, yes. and how do we how do we navigate that externally to where we're treating people as more as ends than means? Yes, 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 that's right. Well, I mean, I mean, you're right that you know, for you know, for, for Freud, of course, I mean, you know, if you read Civilization as Discontents, I mean, um, he, he almost re- makes reference to, to politics as as a kind as a form of sublimation, actually. So you know, he you know even he would talk about in you know, creating or investing new kinds of investing in new forms of community, for instance, as a way of, uh, you know, overcoming uh, or coming to terms with, with neurosis. So you, it's not a question of, as you, as you put it, of repression, um, because, that, you know, as Lacan would say, well, you know, what's, what's repressed from the ego returns in the real, doesn't it, often in, in much more kind of, uh, destructive forms. But, you know, reinvesting at that energy, that psychic energy, into you know ethical relations with others into new forms of community new forms of work new forms of economy for instance and also i would say in a way investing into into kind of ecological thinking and um you know i mean i think we also need to recognize that we, we are part of uh, kind of ecological networks and i think this has become much more evident to us in the uh, in the current uh, sort of pandemic crisis you know whereby a, a sort of a chance encounter with uh with the non-human species can kind of but pretty much bring about the the entire end of the world as as we as we currently know it, and it really kind of reminds us of our uh, of our, our fragility and our, our vulnerability, doesn't it? So um, we need to develop new forms of ecological thinking, which sort of recognise, if you like, uh, or, or I suppose recognise our kind of post-human condition as well. Yeah, you know, we, we can't simply think of ourselves as as these kind of autonomous anthropocentric beings who master. The natural world but 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 who are profoundly sort of inserted within and kind of dependent upon networks with with sort of non-human species and with with um you know with 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 the natural world itself so so yes you know, for, i'm curious about that point that you just made about the ecological question right mm. if you sort of um going back to the idea of the union of egoists right if right. can cannot can be sort of expanded upon in your opinion to include mm. non-human and more than human yeah, that, that's that's very interesting, actually. Um, I mean, for many people, the you know Stirner's idea of the union of, of egos or egoists sounds like a totally contradictory and paradoxical notion, because you know the two things would seem to uh, be completely opposed, right? But but you know the way that Stirner thinks about it is that we are coerced into all of these kinds of um, social re- and political relationships and institutions which we have absolutely no control over. You know, whether we're citizens of the nation state or members of all kinds of uh, social organizations, which kind of, in a way, destroy our, our, our autonomy, basically. So what he wanted to try to think about was some sort of alternative way of thinking about relations between people and also the relationship between the individual and the community by talking about these sort of, you know, self-activated communities, which which precisely don't sacrifice the individual to some sort of, you know, broader abstract entity or some some sort of spook 
but but these can be communities of love or uh, communities of, of political action. They can be you know networks of, of activists, which um, which individuals are kind of free to to, to join and, and leave as they uh, as they choose. Really, uh, on the question of, of whether we can think about you know the non-human as part of this kind of union of egos, well, that, that's a, that's a very I don't see why not. Yes, why not? Absolutely. There's nothing to say that it has to be simply a you know union of of, of human beings. Of course, yeah. So I, I think if we think more in terms of networks rather than established forms of, uh, of organization such as political parties for instance or uh, you know nation states or then I think this kind of really broadens out our conception of, of association and what they might actually involve yeah and I wonder if a bridging metaphor to get into that more animistic worldview mm. would be to, to shift from theos to Gaia right right and then yeah. maybe maybe connecting that to Bruno Latour's work on network but with yes. Gaia as, as the kind of the centering metaphor rather than Theos, because the, Theos has, still has this connotation of the external outside power that's above us, right? That's giving and us kind orders of, kind and of commands. An anthropomorphic kind of idea as well, right? Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. But whereas the Gaia it situates us within an already embedded taxonomy yes. of, of the more than human. Yes, that's right. And, and, and it's, 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 it's imminent rather than transcendent, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it you, know, you know, Gaia or something which is kind of... Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of, it's all it's all around us, isn't it? Rather than this kind of you know isolated sort of transcendent uh, being. No, absolutely. I, I think that's. Um, I, I've read uh, Latour's work on um, on Gaia and the political theology of Gaia. Actually, you know, he basically argues we actually do need a new sort of political theology based on on Gaia, essentially. On, on this, um, hmm. the idea of Gaia is often sort of you know dismissed as some kind of you know new age, yeah. you know, mythologization. Yeah. But but I think I think all Gaia is really is a recognition of. The fact that we are we, we're part of broader networks and broader ecosystems on which our, our own survival depends and we, we simply have to recognize this uh, and i think there is a, there is a room for a certain kind of re-enchantment of, of nature and a kind of a re-spiritualization of our lives based upon the recognition of of these networks and ecosystems i would say yeah i find that helpful because uh we are talking to tim ingold next week he's right. done wait, some wait, work wait. Is, it, is it next week I don't know. Maybe it's not. I don't, we're talking to Tim Ingold <laughs> in the future. Sometime <laughs> soon. Yeah, it's a not now, but it hasn't it hasn't occurred yet. So no, but he. I've only I've read one of his papers as a as a master student on this this notion between globe and sphere. I can't remember which metaphor referred to which, but the, one of them yeah. referred to the kind of transcendent man outside looking in, right, mm. versus the, the other as being embedded within a, a series of interlocking mutual, sometimes parasitic interspecies relations, right? Right. And even our own biome biology is filled with the microbiome right like mm. what does it mean to be human is it just the human cells is it the non-human cells is it the whole thing is it my consciousness mm. right so like what we think of it even as our uh, molecular self is an embedded multiplicity of interspecies sure. relations right not including the whole history to get up to here but I, I think like this embedded nature is really interesting because um it helps me think through and rearticulate Roberto Esposito's notions of immunity or immunitas right, right? Right, where right. that's a type of political theology, I think, for the way he's articulating, especially fascism, is like immunity is defend the borders. Yes. We need more walls yes. and, we need, and we need more vaccinations and we need more immunity from the yes. invading other. Whereas more a more Gaic approach maybe to immunity would be to look at how we're already constituted as the multiple yes. of various different species and rearticulate what do we mean by immunity? Immunity for uh, for whom, right? And so mm. these are just new thoughts formulating. So I don't have like a, a well thought out like projection, but I think mm. it's a different way to rearticulate the, how the religious and the political yeah. are already already embedded within each other mm. within modernity and postmodernity, and then reenchanting all of that. So yes, yes. I, right. I think what I hear you saying is the COVID virus has rights. Well, the co the COVID virus is is <laughs> just in kidding. a sense. Just... It, it, well, no, but I, I was thinking about this. COVID is a type of eruption. It's an anarchic insurrection. Yes. Yes, of the guy yes. of the guy right Absolutely. it was trying to in a sense we could look at it if it had a will it was to kind of in a sense slow down the machine of the emperor yes, yes. capitalism or what what have you you know these, these yes. various forms of human empires right and maybe it operates as more of an anarchic smith from um from the hmm. matrix it's, it's got the will of morpheus but it, it operates in a sense maybe like as an hmm. antagonist maybe it's a neo i don't know but anyway hmm. my metaphor hmm. is falling apart there but <laughs> no no but i mean I think be, it's, yeah. It's, yeah yeah no i i like this idea of uh the virus is kind of an anarchic <laughs> eruption but of course it depends on depends on what we do with it, it depends on how, how we, we respond to it if we simply return to life as we once knew it then uh we've learned nothing from this lesson and, and actually my, my fear is that we probably will try to just kind of you know restore uh you know uh, you know the, the economy uh, prior to covid and try to restore every single every other aspect of life and go back to uh destroying the uh <laughs> the planet 
<laughs> you know, with, with yeah, such yeah. merry abandon. But but you know, um, maybe something good will come out of this as well. Maybe new ways of, of living. And uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not that hopeful. Sound, but, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just it really yeah, depends yeah. on what, what we take from this from from this lesson that uh, yeah, the nature has taught us actually. Catherine Keller and um, who was the other person who wrote that uh, article? Is this an apocalypse? We certainly hope so. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, John, John Tatamanil. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, a, right. he's a theologian at um, at uh, Union, I think. Yeah, so not not to sort of unpack that article, but I, I think that idea is is uh, relevant to what you were just saying. Like, we hope we learn something from this. We hope that something is being revealed, and that you yeah. know some some modicum of transformation is becomes possible. and it's a sort of rubber meets the road question. Right. Um, you know, I'm sort of curious about how anarchism gets cashed out because I, I find it very, mm-hmm. I, I find myself very attracted to it. I find it very appealing. You know, on one hand, I don't, I don't expect there to be, you know, some fully fleshed out anarchist program or agenda or telos, right? That would, that would run mm-hmm. counter to the things that you, you write about. Right. But we still have values. Maybe one example is like, you know, voting. How do you feel about voting? Is it always problematic? Or or like in terms of healthcare, right? Like I think universal healthcare is a pretty good idea, it seems yes, like. Yes. But then that's would give the state even, you know, greater power over our over our lives, which from an anarchist perspective mm-hmm. seems like a maybe not so good thing. So help me out here. No, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, these are all very difficult questions for an anarchist, certainly. Um, I mean, on the, <laughs> the question of voting, look, I, I think I think times are so desperate, we, we just have to, uh, you know, vote strategically. Um, for instance, I, I was following the, the, the recent US elections uh, obsessively, you know, <laughs> check, checking my checking the results like every every literally every every five minutes, actually. Um, you know, we live in such sort of desperate times and what one simply can't afford to be kind of, you know, ideologically pure as it were i mean we do have to kind of you know fight certain strategic battles and i think um i think at certain times you know voting can be quite important um obviously yes i, I support universal health care I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that's that's necessarily contrary to sort of anarchist principles i mean i, th- I think if you think about healthcare as uh, as a kind of a universal human right as it were i mean and something something which kind of you know allows you to to exercise a greater degree of autonomy, it's very hard to be free if you if you're sick and if you you know <laughs> can't can't afford healthcare, for instance, right? right? Uh, having said that, I'm I'm also very um, taken with, for instance, someone like Ivan Illich, who um, if you read his book Medical Nemesis, he talked about the way in which um, you know modern healthcare systems pretty much kind of you know rob the individual of autonomy and and uh, make the individual you know dependent upon not only upon the state but also a big pharma and you know big sort of medical companies and so on and and so he was very interested in in um autonomous healthcare practices which isn't said that he was you know he wanted to get rid of like you know publicly funded hospitals for instance but you know he, he was kind of quite interested in um in the way in which we can um, avoid what he called iatrogenic diseases by, you know, just just taking some basic care of ourselves and, you know, living lives which are kind of healthier and, and kind of in a way, the individuals re- reclaiming responsibility for his or her own health rather than just simply, you know, placing ourselves within the power of the or within the hands of the medical establishment. So, so I think that's that's quite important too, actually. Some sense of responsibility for one's own one's own health, I think, can be can be no bad thing. Yeah, Nicholas Rose talks a little bit about this in his book, um, The Politics of Life. Right. Where, I mean, there, there are a few sections in there where he's talking about different groups of people who have specific illnesses that maybe of course, yeah, are like yeah. very small percentage of the population get. And so they, yes. they they are communicating with each other through forums and conversations and they're trying to take back in a sense their own autonomy yes. through yes. Yes. understanding that they're, like their genetic disease or whatever. But I think yes. like this, the Ivan Ellis approach might be looking at like, some way to blend maybe quote unquote modern medicine with yes. uh, these kind of new age kind of mystical like essential oil approaches to therapy or you know Chinese yeah, medicine well, traditional stuff you know like yeah even, even more traditional forms of healing yeah. I, don't, I don't think it has to be sort of new age necessarily well, yeah 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 but I I, th- I think you know his concern was really to, you know the way in which um, modern medicine often promotes sickness rather than cures sickness 
obviously if you've got if you if you've broken your leg or your arm or something you, you know you've got to go and uh, you know <laughs> got to, you've got to go to hospital or go to a and e but you know when it comes to all of these kinds of lifestyle illnesses you know which come from you know sort of sedentary lifestyles and uh unhealthy uh, diets and um and also you know like the way in which we kind of you know use and abuse and overuse antibiotics for instance you know creating all of these drug resistant forms of bacteria which which is going to um which is going to be the next kind of uh, public health care crisis i think at some point in the future I, I mean i think these are the things which we need to think quite carefully about actually so um so yes i mean it's, it's not a question of uh getting rid of publicly funded healthcare. on the contrary it's, it's but it's also a matter of taking some degree of responsibility for our own um yeah. around health i would say and, and giving people the kind of the tools to do that you know yeah that's the educational wing of the yes anarchic, yes exactly. of the anarchic yeah. state right yeah you know i mean in a sense that we are incentivized i think in a lot of ways i mean there are just different nodes in consumer mm. culture like that you have these diseases of prosperity you know that come with being overfed mm. uh not, not being active enough because our mm. jobs like you know we're incentivized to have good jobs and the quote-unquote good jobs are the ones where you're sitting in a desk nine hours a day mm. you know talking on the phone or whatever I do think there's a way, I mean, I hope there's a way to rethink of like how we have publicly funded institutions like education or, or health insurance or healthcare, right? But it's mediated from within, not from without. Like that's not the state articulating these programs. Right. There's a relationship between the state, the corporations or the entities that are producing <clears throat> medications and researching uh, like like educational institutions, researching mm. new medications and mm. forms of living and the individual who's who's quote unquote consuming or, you know, it's right. just, again, maybe the, maybe to expand the Gaia metaphor there to, in some other way to be more um, network based. Or, yeah, exactly. That's right. Com community based healthcare, for instance, I, I think is um, is an interesting idea here. And, and you know, you do hear, don't you, about, you know, in the, in the context of, of COVID, you hear about new forms of mutual aid kind of emerging at a kind of a, a local grassroots level. Uh, people helping each other and yeah. um, delivering food and uh, so so maybe there's something to be said for uh, Kropotkin's idea of, uh, of of mutual aid you know as kind of a basis for uh, healthcare. Yeah. and we saw a little bit of that coming out of the the occupy wall street movements too with uh, right right i mean hurricane sandy when it came to new york and the east coast there a lot of people mm -hmm. who were organizing during occupy also organized for mutual aid, mutual yeah, aid and stuff yeah. so yeah. and yeah. in a way i mean you know make, it also makes you realize doesn't it how how often how ineffective state institutions are in providing mm -hmm. you know health care and assistance and aid for people right so you know at the time of hurricane sandy i was working in emergency services uh, particularly on Long Island and Staten Island. I worked in the, the city here. And I remember the, uh, the Occupy folks, they mm. were all, they were on it. They were all mm. over the place. They did more work than any of the, um, you know, the, sort of the big nonprofit sort of social service institutions. Right. They, they were on the ground every day mm. Mm. with their sleeves rolled up. And I was really impressed mm. by that. And that's yeah. just really interesting to think about how that sort of came directly out of the Occupy movement, right? Yes. They, they had already been rehearsing what it meant to be live a, a more sort of nomadic yes. life of mutual aid and and well care. these these are the like the ultimate survivalists right i mean you know whereas you get these right-wing militias walking around with, with assault rifles preparing for the apocalypse i mean it seems to be the ones who are truly prepared for it are the uh, are the anarchists who believe in mutual aid you know they're the ones who are, who are properly equipped it seems to me for uh, you know for the impending apocalypse so yeah. actually, I, I lied. I, I do have one more question. Uh, course, just yeah. it just it just occurred to me, and it's just <laughs> I just want to. It's the only quote of Stirner that I've committed to memory. Um, okay. I think it's something like a handful of power is worth more than a bag full of rights, which sounds the anti-Stirner issue. Like, what do you think yeah. about that? What do you what did he mean by that? I mean, he he does sort of. Uh occasionally say things which kind of make him sound more like more like Hobbes rather than the, yeah. rather than anarchist right um you know he's very critical of uh, or skeptical let's say of the idea of rights because he, he thought you know rights is just simply another kind of liberal spook another sort of ideological abstraction which you know really comes down it doesn't really mean anything because I mean you can have all of the notions and conceptions and you know declarations of rights in the world but if they're not protected adequately um if they're not if they have no as it were, power behind them, then he would say that they're ultimately meaningless. I mean, he made the same point also about, about freedom. He would say, you know, freedom is just this kind of, um, you know, pointless dream that we just keep chasing. Um, and so he proposed this idea of, of ownness instead of freedom, because ownness is something which, um, as it were, starts from the egoist and, and um, in a way kind of gives us the freedom to be free in our own kind of specific, unique and singular way. Like when he talks about power, I don't think he's really 
necessarily proposing some sort of sort of Hobbesian real politic. I think what he's more interested in is thinking about the way in which I guess everything really comes back down to us. It comes back to our sort of, um, as it were, sort of, you know, life affirming power to, I guess, change our lives and change the nature of our relationships with others, for instance. So, so we need to think beyond these kinds of spooks, if you like, like rights and like freedom and like the liberal state, perhaps, and kind of invent our own ways of, of doing politics. So in a way, it does, in a sense, come back down to the power of the individual, not so much his or her power over other people, but his or her power over, over himself, ultimately. Yeah, there's a sort of invocation there of discipline. Right. Yes, self-discipline. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's, that's very important, actually. I mean, I, I don't think there's any freedom or any, any hope of freedom without some degree of self-discipline. So it's what I, what I refer to as the, as the discipline of indiscipline. I mean, it's just simply the idea that, um, you know, without the ability to, to discipline oneself, you know, you're always going to be mastered, I think, by other people because, you, you know, you have this sort of tendency or, or propensity, if you like, to... Um, to put yourself within someone else's power it's like this kind of uh, ancient idea of uh, ataraxia or self-mastery you know which which goes all the way back to sort of ancient greece and rome and back to the stoics and uh, uh and this idea that you know you, you know we have certain tendencies within our certain passions uh, the will to dominate or the will to be dominated certain appetites which kind of lead to our own destruction and the, the destruction of our own freedom and unless we can actually master those appetites and passions and exercise some degree of control over ourselves then you know there's, there's no possibility of being of being free right so so to engage in in a politics of indiscipline then i think we need to firstly be able to discipline ourselves yeah no that makes uh, sense so i think maybe that's a good place to uh wrap things up okay for folks who want to learn more about anarchism or post-anarchism besides your books um which we'll which we'll link to in the show notes what what would you recommend where would you direct uh people well i mean there's lots of obviously there's a huge amount of literature on on anarchism um Mm -hmm. i mean i just wouldn't quite know where to start but i mean i mean in terms of post-anarchism well we can go to people like i mean Dwayne roussel i don't know if you're if you've heard of him actually his uh yeah, he writes a lot about sort of Lacanian psychoanalytic theory, but um, he wrote a book uh, some years ago called Post-Anarchism, a Reader, and uh, he's got some interesting um, kind of psychoanalytical uh, interpretation of, of, of anarchism, which, which I find quite interesting. Um, someone like Todd May, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, he, he wrote a book some time ago now called The Political Philosophy of Post-Structuralist Anarchism. He does a lot of work on Derrida, doesn't he? Or also uh, yes, Derrida. yeah, Derrida, Jacques Rancière as well, actually. Yeah. You know, to return to our um, discussion before about breaking away from sort of anthropocentric and anthropomorphic models of, um, of you know, of, of kind of, you know, human experience and so on, and thinking more about our relationship with, you know, with, with sort of Gaia and the idea of kind of re-enchanting the, um, the natural world and think about a kind of relationship with non-human species. Those ideas really imply a certain kind of, you know, decentralization of power relationships, right? And the breaking down of you know traditional kind of you know hierarchies, and so there's, there's a very direct connection it seems to me with anarchism, or at least with, with certain tendencies within anarchism, right? I mean, certainly many anarchists would would, would reject this uh, notion, but but you know, no, I, I think a connection is very interesting. Yeah, maybe, maybe a future research project for me. <laughs> well, we uh, we want to credit if it happens. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's see if we can uh, promote new forms of post-anarchism, neo-pagan anarchism. You know, in our uh, in our daily lives, in our uh, in our work, in our in our research, for instance, in our uh, political activity, and maybe uh, who knows? Maybe this this sort of current interregnum, this strange space that we're all living in at the moment, might might give us sort of pause for thought and uh, allow us perhaps to engage in that sort of internal insurrection that. Uh, Sterner advocates as a way of kind of radically changing our, our own lives and uh, the lives of those around us. May it be so. That's a good benediction. May it be so. <laughs> cool. Well, that was cool. uh, that was fun. Likewise, yeah. Yeah, it was really enjoyable for me. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. All right, gents. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so good much. Day. Talk to you later, Saul. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.
right, thanks again to Saul. Thank you for listening. Make sure to take a look at the show notes where I've linked to a few things uh, of Saul's you may want to uh, have a look at and explore. As mentioned in the conversation, we're talking to British anthropologist Tim Ingold next week, which I have to admit I'm pretty psyched for. Theme music was provided by Nikki Nine. Outro music, graphic, and sound design by Matt Baker. Peace. Thank you.